Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello everyone and welcome back to New Books in History, a channel on the New Books Network podcast. I'm your host Crawford Gribben and today I'm delighted to say my guest is Jeremy Black. We've had Jeremy on the show many times before um, and today we're going to be talking to Jeremy about two of his most recent books, The Importance of Being Poirot, published by St. Augustine's Press and England in the Age of Dickens, just published by Amberley. Jeremy, it's always a delight to see you and to speak to you about your work. Welcome back. Thank you very much. And congratulations on these books. Now, I've mentioned to listeners that we've obviously had you on New Books Network, both with myself and with other hosts in the last number of years. But for anyone who hasn't caught up with those episodes, could you tell us a little bit about yourself? Yes, I've recently retired from the University of Exeter in Britain. Uh, I'm still actively writing. Um, I've been writing since the beginning of the 80s on a wide range of historical topics. And um, I'd like to think that the key thing about my work is the range and intellectual ambition. People often comment on the number of books. Quite frankly, you're neither a better academic because you write a lot of books or, as many academics foolishly think, because they write few books but claim they're of great significance. Each book, however many you do or however few, should be judged on their merit. And what I would like to say is mine show an intellectual ambition and an attempt to, in many senses, push the boundaries. And obviously you are a prolific writer, but we're speaking today about your comments on two other prolific writers, Dickens and Agatha Christie. These two projects are part of a longer project you've developed over the last couple of years, which is about thinking about creative writers from an historian's perspective. And we've had you talking about England in the age of Shakespeare. We've had you talking about England in the age of Jane Austen. But you've also written a great deal about James Bond. And if it was a different episode, we could ask for your views in the recent movie. But can I ask, what was it drew you as an historian to, to, to take seriously the work of creative writers? What does that add to you as an historian? Well, thank you. I think that's a very good question. And it reflects a degree of dissatisfaction with both the subject of history, which I think doesn't always take sufficiently seriously uh, the literary works, but also I've often found the contextualization offered by literary scholars, the historical contextualization, rather limited, uh, in part because it's often too simplistic and in part because it's often teleological and somewhat progressivist. So in, as you say, um, Shakespeare, Austin and Fleming, and indeed I have forthcoming uh, next year, uh, Conan Doyle, um, uh, Fielding and Smollett. So in, in all of these, what I've tried to do is to offer a historian's perspective that is more acute 
on a lot of the literary material, but at the same time using the literary material to throw light on some of the historical questions and issues of the period. So if, you know, if we might um, draw attention to the Austin one, I've tried to take much more seriously than most Austin scholarship does um, her religiosity. Uh, in the case of Shakespeare, I've tried to um, uh, put a question mark against what is currently the rather faddish attempt to present him as a somewhat radical writer. And that, I suppose, brings us to, to Dickens and Christie, uh, who are the subjects of our discussion today. Two, two really fascinating uh, books which are paralleled each other, I think, in interesting ways. What, what do we gain when we read these two books side by side, when we think historically about Dickens and Christie, the worlds they represent, how does that help us understand the world in which they live? Thank you. Well, in each case, I'm trying to think carefully about the frame of reference. So for Dickens, I very much focused on the idea that he should not be seen as the quintessential Victorian writer because his uh, frame of reference was actually moulded in the pre-Victorian period. And indeed, he died in 1870 and Queen Victoria's reign still had another 31 years to run. Um, so what I'm trying to do with Dickens is in practical terms to present him as a um, regent, regency and um, Williamite writer, um, you know, sort of from the period 1812 when he was born uh, to 1837, trying to present him from a writer of that period with his experiences made and gained in that period and how that then plays through. So part of it is an account, which I believe historians should always be interested in, which is an account of change, of the interaction of circumstances and contingencies. In the case of Christie, what I'm trying to do is to take, you know, the most successful uh, writer in the English language in terms of number of books published and trying to ask serious questions about how we portray Christie now. So I try and devote due weight to her uh, anti-communism, the political context of her writings, to her Christian uh, moral uh, focus. Um, and I, I argue inter alia that much of the modern perception of, of Christie with its focus on the material culture, the spats and all, if you like, um, really, as it were, is based on a simplification of a writer who is more profound. There is a tendency, as you know, to downplay uh, detective fiction as a whole, but also um, golden age detective fiction, and more specifically uh, Christie. And I think actually that reflects a degree of cultural condescension and simplification of a of an important uh, branch of British literature. Yes, the, the cultural politics of the middle brow are always interesting, aren't they? Uh, and, and, and the way that works out. Well, let's let's chat a little bit about the first of these can books, I just, Jeremy. Can I just so, hmm. sorry, intervene there just a second? Um, uh, yes and no. I mean, in a way, Christie, you could describe her as middle brow, but she is actually dealing with pretty profound issues. Why you murder somebody how and why you pursue justice are fundamental questions of human society. And in novels like Nemesis, she's dealing with those. And again, I think I'm not I'm not criticizing yourself, but I think there is a tendency to see detective fiction as middle brow, as if that is less morally serious. 
I mean, I would argue that somebody like Chris, Agatha Christie is much more morally serious than Virginia Woolf, for example. Yeah, well, I, I'm no Virginia Woolf advocate, Jeremy. Uh, no. we, we'll talk a bit more about the providentialism, maybe, and the, 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 the sort of the idea of apocalypse, of revelation, of unveiling, uh, perhaps um, l- l- later on. Well, the first of these books, England, Age of Dickens, eighteen twelve to seventy, Dickens is sometimes thought of as a novelist of London. You describe London in the book as a world city. And of course, as with much of your writing, you pay careful attention to geographical issues. There's that beautiful section of illustrations in the centre uh, where we have Robert Havel's panorama of London, 1831, and then some really striking maps of London, a uh, descriptive map of London poverty uh, included at the very back of the book. What does it mean for us to think of Dickens as a novelist of a London experience? What is a London experience in this period? Well, London was the largest man-made environment in the world at that stage, and also the most potent. And as such, uh, for Dickens and others, I mean, Dickens isn't the first one to engage with London. Blake, Wordsworth had had written very seriously about London, and 18th century uh, novelists like Fielding and Smollett had, uh, had engaged very much with London. But as such, London poses issues of social organization, of cultural norms, of of uh, of as it were an almost existential change in morality um, that I think is really um, um, sort of gripping and immediate. So that when, for example, you know, I quote in um, the book the uh, Dickens's passages about the enormous disruption wrought by the railway as it sort of chews up North London, the background, the backdrop to the modern stations at St Pancras, Euston, and King's Cross. This is human beings for a new world in a most astonishing fashion. And I think Dickens um, rises to the challenge of what he can say about that as a moral space. I mean, obviously, he's rather naive. I don't mean that to be critical, but he's rather naive on the economics of the city. He's rather naive about finance. You know, he's, um, you know, his um, idea of finance is very much good or bad so there's no there's no ambiguity uh, with dickens but he does capture the physicality of the new urban space and i think he does that better than anybody else now one of the things that really struck me about your book jeremy was the way that you described dickens as a novelist of a particular phase of london life he's he's often looking back isn't he Um, And for all that we think of him as a Victorian novelist, the London he's really interested in tends to be an older iteration of that city. Is that fair to say? Yes, I think that's fair to say. And also it's fair to point out that Dickens in his last years was not actively still writing novels to the extent he'd done so earlier. I mean, obviously he dies leaving a novel, Edwin Drood, unfinished. But in his last years, um, his public readings were more important. So I think one could fairly say that Dickens is basing his experience of an earlier London, particularly obviously the Marshalsea prison, um, and then writing about that in the early Victorian period. Um, He, um, I mean, one of his later books, of course, Hard Times, is explicitly outside London and is dealing with and engaging with a very different environment. And of course, you know, when Little Nell goes off to the West Midlands and then you know, first to Birmingham and then to Shropshire. That novel also goes in that direction. So there are important 
um, interactions with a new Britain outside London. It's not just London that is the new Britain for Dickens, but it is London that is the focus for it. You mentioned Little Nell there, and I think towards the end of the book you quote Oscar Wilde's quip. Um, what is it again? It's just, it just eludes me about um, a, heart, a heart being so stony not to laugh at Little Nell's death, something along those lines. Yes, yes. How, how does that help us think about the popularity of Dickens' writing in his own life? Well, I mean, you asked me earlier about comparisons and, of course, between the two authors we're discussing. And, of course, both Charles Dickens and Agatha Christie uh, were highly popular. Also, a point that isn't quite always brought out is they both were able to write, as it were, short works. I mean, Dickens was both a a journalist, magazine writer, and also obviously brought out novels in part works. Dickens, um, Christie wrote complete novels, but also wrote a lot of short stories, some of which uh, were public, published in ephemera, such as uh, newspapers. Um, and I think they've got, uh, and both of them, of course, were playwrights. I mean, you know, it's it's very significant here that the range of writing and again, there is in, in the process of condescension, which you see among many of those who create or construct or teach the canon, there is often a simplification. Um, and indeed, as you as, as, as I mentioned, going back, I mean, if you're looking at both Fielding and Smollett, Fielding is a successful playwright as well as a successful novelist, is also a journalist. Smollett is an unsuccessful playwright, though he tries, but he's also a critic, a translator, a journalist, as well as a novelist. And Fleming, and I'm noted, of course, for James Bond, also as a travel writer, writer of Chitty Chitty Bang Bang, etc. Conan Doyle writes an enormous amount other than Sherlock Holmes. Um, so part of the skill of all of these writers is that they engage with a range of of audience, they engage with a range of format, and they are successful in all of it. I mean, Agatha Christie is more successful as a playwright than Dickens, but Dickens is very interested in theatricality. And of course, um, Dickens has an element that Christie lacks in that he is an actor as well. I mean, he actually turns his life um, into a narrative. He turns himself as to the, into the principal presenter of his novels and his great readings in a way that Christie is much more subdued. Um, and there is that interesting personal difference between them. I mean, you could add a gender dimension. You could add, if you wanted to, a dimension about um, the need for, for funds and all sorts of things and social mores. Um, I think the psychological one is, is possibly the most instructive. But for both of them, it is the skill that helps to, to, helps to bring them popularity. And I think that Dickens's popularity is in part because his novels do engage are uh, the readers of the period. He creates characters, some of them, of course, many of them, you might argue, caricatures, but not all of them caricatures, but he creates characters um, 
that people are interested in. And, you know, I've referred to 18th century novels. Many of the, I mean, Dickens himself makes clear in David Copperfield, which is the semi-autobiographical novel, where he refers to David reading the books left by his father. And he makes clear his very strong dependence on Smollett there. Um, Smollett is the novelist made, mentioned most clearly. And that's taken further because most people don't realise that two of the other books mentioned were in fact books translated by Smollett, you know, the two foreign ones. Um, and in many senses, Dickens is writing more successfully, you could argue, um, against the background of how Smollett had constructed plots and characters. Mm, fascinating. Well, how, how would you describe, having made this overview of, of uh, Dickens' uh, life and works, how would you describe his politics? Well, I mean, there is obviously a measure of inconsistency there, which shouldn't surprise us. Politicians' job is not to provide an easy backdrop for, for individuals to offer consistency and vice versa. Dickens has a clear radical strand, which you can see in his journalism, for example, in his uh, reporting of parliamentary elections. But he also has a personal conservatism resting in part on a strong moral sense about responsibility. And this captures, I would say, an element, a powerful element of society in that period. He himself, with his concern about fallen women, um, his concern, which you can see in his correspondence, his correspondence has been printed. You can see he's very active in a lot of social concerns, as you will know. Um, in the pop modern social politics, uh, Dickens, as it were, missteps because he is um, uh, not um, the sympathiser um, with um, uh, imperial subjects. I mean, you know, as, he, as you know, he is scathing about philanthropists who care about imperial subjects abroad but don't care about the working man at home and indeed um, you could argue if you wish to push the comparison with Smollett further Smollett is a non-person these days because Smollett of course as is generally known or should be known uh, marries a, a woman who is an heiress in the West Indies and that brings wealth from a um, Jamaican plantation. So there are elements in which, in modern social politics and cultural politics, both men are unacceptable. But in terms of the age, I would say what's interesting about Dickens is that overwhelmingly he comes across as a kind of a sort of moral radical, which plays a role in the creation of a non-Marxist British left. You know, I think there are elements in Dickens that look towards George Orwell. Hmm. Interesting. And we, we do get that same extensive commitment to a moral view of the world in Christie's work as well, don't we? So as you as you wrote the book on Poirot, The Importance of Being Poirot, and, you know, reread and thought about some of the, the key texts there, how did you see Christie's politics or social attitudes changing or developing or maturing over the course of her life? Well, I think she maintains a consistent uh, patriotism. I think she maintains a consistent religiosity. And as I point out in the book, she frequently quotes uh, from both the Bible, and obviously she was a very pious woman and had a good, strong knowledge of the Bible, and also from Shakespeare. Shakespeare provides a clear moral code for Agatha Christie. Um, she... Um, 
I think it's fair to say um, that um, the the extent to which uh, there is change, you can see there are some anti-Semitic tones in the 20s. Uh, those anti-Semitic tones have gone by her uh, later writing. Um, but I think you would say that on the whole, there is a consistency of purpose. What is different is the, the way in which she deploys uh, detectives in very different milieus. So the short stories of Harley Quinn are very much moral accounts with a supernatural uh, character, very different from, for example, Poirot. Um, but the commonality is that Poirot makes it quite clear that he dislikes evil. There is a strong sense throughout Christie of the real presence of evil, evil being a matter of cruelty, a matter of hubris, a matter of a failure to understand the strength and purpose of social uh, bounds and conventions. And that, I would say, is a consistent moral purpose Christie shows from start to finish. Mm. And how important do you think it is that her most famous detective is an outsider in many ways to English society? Well, I think that's in an interesting point. I mean, I think it is. Uh, um, uh, I think it is significant. Um, I think, um, in a way, detectives are always outsiders. Sherlock Holmes is an outsider, and indeed, um, in some cases, you can see him being willing to reprove people of the highest social rank, whether the King of Bohemia or you know a, a full. A belted duke, um, even if they do not conform to what he regards as appropriate behaviour. So in a way, a detective is always an outsider. And that is, I think, brilliantly portrayed in J.B. Priestley's and Inspector Calls, when there is, again, a supernatural quality to the, to the, um, uh, to the detective. Um, what I would say in the case of Poirot is the outsiderish quality is brought out more in the television programs than in Christie's prose. I think in Christie's prose, um, there is less of a sense of him as an outsider because what often occurs is that he's in milieu because he's a personal friend of people. In other words, he is able a easily to integrate himself with reasonable people. He is shown, off shown often as getting on. The fact that he is a Catholic does not make him out as an outsider. Um, I think there is there are a number of ways, in a sense, in which the television, and it's worth bearing in mind that just, uh, that, well, uh, it's, it's important to bear in mind that Hercule Poirot was not written as a character for television or cinema. Um, obvious, and Christie herself was uneasy uh, when he was turned into, a, as I mentioned in my book, when he was turned into a cinema character and there was an attempt to make a major transformation of his personality. Hmm. How important is religion in that personality? And, how, how, and I suppose a bigger question maybe is, how theologically driven are these books towards that moment of unveiling, of revelation, of knowledge? Well, I think so. I think very much so. And I think um, detective fiction is always... 
a important branch of literature because it actually asks fundamental questions about ethics and morality and human purpose and the interaction between will and um, society. So I th and, of, and of course, about the nature of justice. Now, detective fiction has a whole host of different factors and different meanings. Uh, I'm not presenting that there's only one account and, you know, we could. I'm Listeners ought to know that this is Crawford's last uh, uh, last outing on this programme, which is a great pity because we could talk at great length about the morality of detective fiction. But it is very important. And linked to that importance comes the necessity for conventional detective fiction um, to adopt a, um, as it were, a, more, a, um, a clear universe of meaning that when something happens, it has a meaning. There may be an attempt to mislead the reader or observer, but the I, but there is a, pl a plot, and the plot is not one of magic realism. Um, so that there is a meaning there. Um, and I think Christie encapsulates that, and I think that is why so many critics hate her. I think they hate her because she is writing a book about a drama set in a particular um, uh, set of contexts, a particular setting in which, you know, what happens on Wednesday happens after what happens on Tuesday. You know, uh, so I think that is really irritating. And I think people are very irritated by Christie because most, just as most modern historians are figures on the left and classically uh, underrate the importance of religion and the importance of moral issues. So I think the same thing is true of literary critics. Mm. One of the things that really struck me reading through the importance of being Poirot was the way in which Christie maintains a basically intact moral vision of the world, even as that world changes sometimes in fundamental ways around her. How does that play out in the novels? Well, yes, I think that's a very good question, because I do discuss the strains on society and on many of the characters that she depicts in the uh, period after 1945, partly the disruption that's uh, arisen from the war and the, you know, enormous personal travails from many of the characters, partly uh, expropriatory socialist taxation in the late 40s, um, the issues in the 1950s and 1960s of changing social values. And I think Christie is good at looking at the way in which these push some people towards, uh, as it were, expedients that can lead to criminality. And she, in a sense, has done the same with the aftermath of World War One. I. I mean, she is very interesting on. You know, we talk about golden age. The entire golden age is based upon a society whose earlier clear set of values and prosperity had been strained enormously by World War One. And in Christie's case, she lives long enough to return to that theme after um, after World War Two. And so I think that that is a very interesting um, uh, moral uh, dilemma. And she essentially says that whatever your personal strain, you need to maintain a sense of an understanding of a scripturally based social code. Um, and I think that's very clear there. But as I said, the broader point I would make 
is that this is not unique with Christie in terms of detective fiction. I mean, there is to a certainly slightly different uh, tone, but there is the similar sort of thing if you're looking at people such as Dorothy L. Sayers, if you're looking at Marjorie Allingham, I, if you're looking more recently at P.D. James, who was very much writing in a conservative but strongly Anglican uh, tradition. Um, and I think what's interesting is the the role of providence here, that there is this interaction between a providence, a nemesis, but also human beings are have as it were, agency in that position. This is not a Calvinist account of um, of detection, if you like. So, Jeremy, you've written about Shakespeare, Austen, Dickens, Christie, Fleming, and you're going to we're going to be able to read your Conan Doyle, Fielding, and Smollett. So, you should be well prepared for this question: How? Should historians read fiction? Oh, I think historians should need to read fiction with, and indeed, I think everybody should do this without being trapped into some kind of rather flaccid, self-congratulatory context of judgment. So I'm currently reading for the next one I want to write, which is on the Neo-Gothics. I plan to call it England in the Age of Horror. Um, and as you will know, there is a tendency to pe see people like Anne Radcliffe as rather, you know, third-rate novelists. Um, I don't think that's helpful. I think whenever you read a novel, you should think seriously about the values offered, and you should put aside the often self-satisfied and... Um, sort of, uh, I mean, in, in some respects, there is, you know, I, I don't, we're both academics, there is something gone badly wrong with the academic um, system, certainly in the Anglosphere, I don't know sufficiently about where, whether one can describe this more widely. Um, I am very troubled by the extent to which academics, both in Britain and the United States, are so committed to um, endorsing a set of values that is prescriptive, that is not open-minded, that does not offer a multiplicity of approaches to past, present and future, and that in order to advance their views, um, sort of, as it were, denigrates large sections of the past, and is, it d does so from a position of arguing that readers are suffering from false consciousness because they actually might like somebody like Agatha Christie. That, I think, is really both foolish and arrogant. What I'm trying to do is to say to people, uh, I'm essentially a Democrat. Dem democracy doesn't always produce the results, the consequences, the mores that one is necessarily personally comfortable with. But I think that democracy, like capitalism, is the way in which you give agency to individual voters, individual consumers, and individual recipients of and purchasers of and participants in culture. And the last ought to be our approach to culture and not some sort of false, condescending, hierarchical approach in which, what a surprise, those works that the critics like 
are suddenly the best works and everything else is a, is a as it were um, a, a pale reflection of those qual- that quality that is ridiculous in my view hmm. well jeremy it's been a delight today to talk about these two new books england in the age of dickens 1812 to 70 published by amberley and the importance of being poirot published by saint augustine's press um you've told us that we can look forward to conan doyle fielding smollett do you have any time scale in mind for when we might be able to see those books Oh, yes. Those, I mean, they're all done. So those will be out next year. On top of that, next year will be in my series with um, Little Brown Robinson, so of national histories. So I've already done uh, Spain, Portugal and Italy. The next one out will be Germany. That's already done. I'm doing the page proofs at the moment. Uh, For them as well, I've already done the Mediterranean and the Caribbean. The Atlantic and the Pacific will be done. You know, will be out. They're both done. Um, And also a short history of London will be out with them. Um, Then I've also got coming out as in done and accepted a uh, book on the geographies of war um and uh you know i who knows one might be run over by a bus this afternoon but whilst i can i have you know few gifts but one gift i do have is of uh, thinking through problems synthesizing the work of others uh, adding my own perspectives and i t- i intend whilst i can to go on and to try and write in an interesting fashion, knowing that in doing so, I'm taking part in debates with others and not in some way dictating to them. That's wonderful, Jeremy. And we very much look forward to seeing the Gothic book as well in due course. Fantastic. Well, thank you for your time today. Uh, Thanks for coming on to the show to talk about your work and take care. Thank you, and I can hear the Hound of the Baskervilles in the background. (laughs) (laughs) Thanks to everyone else for listening in today, not just my dog. I'll see you next time on New Books and History, a channel on the New Books Network podcast.